Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And this episode is yet another one that is a little bit of a foray into thinking through teacher retention and what we can do to impact the support that we're providing for educators, particularly our classroom practitioners uh, at this time and moving forward. And so I'm really grateful for today's guest who I reached out to after reading a recent Ed Surge article entitled Arizona Needs Teachers, Does the Answer Lie Beyond Recruitment? Which pointed me to Brent Madden. And Brent, is the executive director of the Next Education Workforce and the professor of practice for the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. (laughs) And so, uh, Brent, thank you so much for taking some time uh, to join us for today's conversation. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and we had the opportunity to send a few emails back and forth and to talk ahead of this conversation. And really, uh, I got a sense of Brent's heart for what we have informally uh, discussed as being kind of the co-teaching plus model, uh, the next evolution of some of those practices. And the classroom practitioner in me is just really excited to think through innovative ways to re-envision the work that we get to do in K-12 education and even more broadly than that. And so I'm looking forward to our conversation today, Brent. Can you give us your backstory? Give us a little bit more about who you are and what led you to this work uh, in the larger scheme of education. Absolutely, Andrew. Uh, So I've been at this work for, you know, the better part of a quarter century at this point. Most of it was spent in teacher preparation, uh, preparing educators to go into classrooms. And, you know, I entered the profession through an alternative route. I was a biologist by training. I taught for America, a part of Teach for America in rural South Louisiana. I fell in love with the work. Uh, I was teaching biology and chemistry, physics, physical science, right? Anything that you throw me, science related, it was incredible. I became a nationally board certified teacher, taking this craft incredibly seriously, falling in love with the work, Uh, helped found a a charter school in rural South Texas, uh, right on with the border of Mexico. And, you know, ultimately, uh, during the course of all that work, was very interested in training and the preparation of new teachers, went off, got a doctorate, and studied that work even more, Uh, launched a graduate school of education, the first one in New York to prepare new teachers in about 75 years, expanded that nationally. And during all of that work, right, focused on preparing new teachers to enter the profession, I couldn't shake the fact that some of the people who I thought were just the very best rookie teachers were peeling out of the profession way sooner than you or I or my own kids who are eight and 10 would want them to peel out, right? Like there was something not quite right. And that's what led me to Arizona State University. Tell me more then, I guess, what was it at Arizona State that drew you to that university? So ASU, they're known for their innovation work, right? It's like, you know, whatever it is, like seven, eight years running, number one in innovation. And, you know, honestly, they take that job very seriously. They take the job of also being an institution measured by who we include as opposed to who we exclude and how well they do when they're with us. Uh, I mean, this is built into the fabric of the institution. And 
Uh, I met the dean of the College of Education. Her name's Carol Basile. And she said, Brent, like you've spent your whole career building programs to bring people into the profession, train them, make sure that they feel well prepared, and you still watch them leave. Why don't you come and do something about that? Uh, so if we're thinking about teacher retention, we're thinking about teacher recruitment. What if we've actually built a system to no one's fault? We've built a system that is actually unsustainable for most educators, that we are asking teachers to be all things to all people at all times, that the first day on the job looks remarkably similar to the last day on the job. You know, if the pandemic has, has taught us anything, it's that uh, people want more flexibility and they don't like being alone. But when we really step back and we ask ourselves about like, what is the job of being a teacher, right? Like it's incredibly inflexible. We show up at like whatever it is, 7.30, 8.30 in the morning, we're there till three. I mean, it's like, you want a doctor's appointment? I hope June comes soon enough, <laughs> right? Like this is like, this is, this is like, this is our lived reality is as practitioners. And so, you know, the dean at ASU said, you know, what if we could work in close partnership with schools and districts, communities, educators, and together design a job that was wildly more appealing and sustainable and allowed educators to do what they do best, which is to work with individual learners. Yeah, and connect with kids. And yes. So then tasked with that, uh, as inspiring as that is to hear as a mission statement, perhaps, then obviously had to come the next step of that work, which is, okay, well, what does that look like? What are we going to do? And so how did you then step into this, uh, as we sort of alluded to a moment ago, co-teaching plus approach to arriving at those outcomes? Yeah. So we, we think of this, we call it the next education workforce, right? Because we're thinking about how could we craft a job or really a set of jobs that are way more sustainable and deliver on really great outcomes for both educators themselves and for kids. Um, and the work started small. It really did. I mean, there is a power in going slow. There is a power in moving at the speed of trust. There is a power in including more voices in the design, right? And, and so this wasn't ASU on high. Instead, this was ASU, the Teachers College, in close partnership with schools and districts, communities, families, starting to build a few models of what this could actually look like. And importantly, there isn't one model in any of this, right? The actual context of the school, you know, what you're trying to pull off curricularly, who are the educators on the team, what do you know about the students, that all helps to shape and inform the design of what these models are. But if you're like, Brent, Brent, like strip it, strip it all down. Like what, what's at the core of all this? I would say that it's this, that it's at least two professional educators working very closely together with a shared roster of students. And that together they have particular strengths. They have particular areas of expertise, passion, interest, and we're not asking a single educator to be all things to all kids all the time, but instead these two teachers, but really like, that's like the most simple version of these models. It gets really exciting when you got three or four or five professional educators, you got special educators, you've got para educators in the mix. You've got what we call community educators, right? The true assets of our communities 
coming together around a shared common roster of students. And the moment that you do that, so if the first one is like teams with distributed expertise, the second piece of it is like to do what? Well, it's actually to deepen and personalize learning, not for some kids, but for all kids, for all learners. And the third plank of this big idea is that the moment you've got teams focused on really student-centered learning, you actually create degrees of freedom to think really differently about the way that people enter the profession, the way that they specialize within the profession, and then opportunities for career advancement for educators at sort of all levels within the educational ecosystem. And that this next education workforce concept allows us to actually think really differently about our human capital in a way that helps to address some of the issues of teacher retention. But at the same time, you know, and we're early in the work, is also producing great results for learners. And I love that because, as you said a moment ago, or I'll try to paraphrase it here, I guess, would be to say that once you start to tear down the barriers, right, those walls that we've put up, maybe in a literal sense, as we think of a classroom or in yes. metaphorical sense of just our perception of what yes. it looks like. Uh, th then all of a sudden, you noted that a moment ago, uh, that there are new challenges. Uh, and as any good reflective teacher will tell you, well, 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 what happens with this? Does that mean I have 50 students in my class? How does that? And, you, and it leads you to all these next level questions. And so uh, for someone who's listening in, who maybe is already pushing to those places just from our conversation to this point, uh, I guess let's walk us into that space, Brent, like help us think through maybe some of those first hurdles that we might throw up as being, again, barriers to conceptualizing the potential that this has and how maybe because uh, you've had a chance to implement this, that that's looked in practice. Yeah. So we're lucky enough to be doing this work across uh, about 10 different school systems 50 schools implementing these models. We've got something now on the order of, I don't know, it's, pro it's probably about 150 teams of educators working together in these learning environments. Uh, what I'll say, you know, first, and I said it before, is that none of these models look exactly the same. I think that's really important, right? This isn't like education reform in a box. No, it's like actually trusting and empowering educators to design what makes sense for them and their colleagues in their local context. So that's first. And second, I would say these models inherently look different in elementary contexts as opposed to secondary contexts. This is probably not a big surprise to listeners, right? Like anyone that's ever been in a school, like you could imagine that it, it, it would look different in those contexts. And, you know, so let's, let's start in a third, like a third grade context. The other thing that I'll say is like, where does this start? Like, how does this often start? You know, a school system or a school leader, They'll make a commitment to this, but they often start very small, right? It's like, you're not trying to flip your entire school district overnight from the default normative one teacher in a box with a group of kids or all day or until a bell rings. Like that's never going to work, right? What I see is that schools and school systems start small. So here's a case, Mesa Public Schools. It's the largest school district in the state of Arizona. They've got about 80 schools. They've got about 60,000 uh, learners. They started with like about three schools, a couple of elementary schools in a, in a large comprehensive high school. In one of these elementaries, it's called Stevenson Elementary. And they started with just the third grade. There were four third grade teachers. 
there was about 100 students, not quite 100 students, right? Shared for easy math, just assume like 25 kids. They were each in one of four classrooms, right? And what they decided was that that team of four third grade teachers was going to collectively share and own that group of 100 kids. All right, so we got it. All right, four professional educators. We've got 100 kids. They used to be 25 kids in four boxes. And then all of a sudden, they take the names off the doors, right? You might have like one classroom library instead of four classroom libraries. You might have, right? And they started to make some modest modifications to the physical space. We can get into that if you want. It's like super fun, right? But really what you kind of need are like four classrooms in close proximity, or maybe two classrooms with two educators collaborating. But the moment that this happened, four educators, 100 kids, right now, if you think about it from an equity perspective, kids are being assigned to a single teacher. And if your kid is like my kid, Scott, I like Scott so much, right? Mm. He doesn't like all of his teachers. Like they don't all totally click, right? So, you know, first day of school, you're always worried. <laughs> Please let me get the teacher with whom I'm like, Scott, he was a brilliant student, love him. Like, but sometimes you don't click, right? And then that's like 180 days of whoa. <laughs> and so, and so, right? Like imagine instead you've got a hundred students that are shared by these four educators, these four third grade professional educators. And, you know, sometimes it looks fairly similar to like what we've done before, but like you start to then peel the onion and, and some really interesting things start happening. So first of all, those four educators, they actually have different strengths, and so one of them might be very good at teaching mathematics, like exceptional. One of them might be a rookie teacher, emergency credential teacher, right? Like, I don't know how things are going for y'all, but we're like, we're looking for teachers still. And it's like, you know, school's been, you know, in session for a few weeks. And so when we think about educators being in rooms with kids, like this actually lowers some of the risk, I think, of putting 25 kids with a, a relatively inexperienced emergency credential teacher, that's where they, they could be part of that team. But the person I want designing like great math lessons is a person that loves math and is going to geek out on math all day. And you might even see that person teaching, you know, a large group of students. It's probably not 100 kids all at once. Could be for a mini lesson, but it might be a couple of groups of 50. And there's another teacher in the room, right, while that's happening. And then they like break out. And then you've got students that are grouped dynamically and that they're working with one of those four teachers in small groups and you've integrated technology, or maybe you've got some paraeducators that are coming into the mix because you're actually using data to drive instruction. And you, as the team of educators, get to make the call, right? Like you're, you're like figuring out, okay, which students should be with which groups at which time. And this buys you a lot of flexibility. And right, like it looks different at different moments in time. Imagine that there is a group of tutors that are coming in, right? Now those tutors could be dynamically deployed across this learning space as well. Maybe it's only a few hours a week, or maybe they're there throughout the day and kids are rotating into them. But there's a different level of, no, we all own these students. You know, it's hard. There's things that about it that are hard. Like we're used to as classroom teachers. I don't know how it was for you, but like the door swung on its hinges. And I was like, that it was my class. It was our classroom, me and the students. And I didn't have to worry about anyone else for the most part, at least for, you know, 50 minutes, you know, a day. And so, you know, if you say, Brent, like, what are some of the biggest challenges to this? I mean, one, it's honestly the default normative model of schooling. 
Like we've all been pretty hardwired for the most part. Not all of us, you know, went to school in this way, but most of us did in one teacher with one classroom. And so this is like, this is a challenge. There's a lot of school systems, you know, like your student information systems. They love one teacher, one classroom. They don't like this idea of multiple adults sharing like a common roster of kids. Like, no, it causes them to start to smoke up and like, you know, <laughs> throw sparks. So, uh, you know, those, those are those are real. And at the secondary level, things like AP classes are challenging. Electives are challenging. But what we're finding is that you're still teaching biology, but you're also collaborating with this team. And there's some pedagogical, like maybe the team is, is uh you know, you've got a data analyst on the team that's looking at data across all the disciplines. You've got someone that knows something about project or problem-based learning. And that instead of having a bunch of disconnected silos of secondary content, you might be still learning your biology, but you're also coming together in a unit on superheroes and genetic mutations and the backstory and like all of this, right? And, and so what I'm seeing in these classrooms is more interdisciplinary work, teachers collaborating more. And then like some of the key is about flexibility over scheduling. You know, there's things you can't change like lunch and when an elective happens or when a specials happen. But honestly, you're monitoring your instructional minutes, making sure that all that's happening. But as a team of professional educators, like sometimes when I needed a biology lab, it wasn't because it was like Tuesday and that was my double block. It was because that's where we were in the curriculum. And I could imagine, right, in these new models, we see it happening. That the teachers are talking to one another, They're like, hey, can I get a double block of biology this week on Wednesday? Because that's what we need to do. And so teachers are actually talking to one another. They're flexing their schedules. They're like grouping and regrouping students dynamically to meet the actual whole child needs. And we haven't even started to get into community educators and the sorts of things that, right, like when these models are fully juiced, it's the kind of place that I want my kids learning every single day. Well, I love not only your passion, but that... There is something to being willing to start an implementation and then step back and listen and go through the process of iteration with people who are all on board. And I can hear even in the organization of the story that you just shared, the why certainly drives where you begin. But once you allow teachers to, and I think you alluded to this, there's the model and then there's the art of teaching, right? And and in between the push and pull of those polar ends of the spectrum uh, lies that innovation that is unique to your local context and grade level and uh, all of those things. And so uh, it's really fun to hear that that space was made. And I think when that happens, then a new wise capital W, can emerge that you didn't even realize were going to be the benefits of that particular system until you got that far into the work to go, oh, the teachers went here with this, the students went here with this, and wow, is that a major plus and a deviation from the traditional? I, I mean, I've, I'm hearing that and what you're sharing. Oh my gosh, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, there are things that are happening, right? Like, we've got teachers that are in these models that are doing things like presenting at conferences because they can actually... You know, that was one of the worst things as a classroom teacher was like being out for a day. Like it was like lights out, right? It's like the preparation and then like the sub and oh my gosh, like what's going to happen there? And then there was always like a day of cleanup. In these models, like you get together with your team and you say, hey, like I, I need to go and, and present at a statewide conference. Can we cover here? And and often the district will still provide a substitute, but sometimes the team just rejects it and say, hey, we don't actually need a substitute. We got it with our team here right? Like this is professionals 
making professional calls. I mean, sometimes they take the sub and they say, hey, this is great. You're, you're really good at teaching little kids to read. I need you over here with this set of students. Basically all day, we're just going to rotate kids out, right? That's really different than showing up as a substitute. If you ever want to see, <laughs> you want to be entertained, like Google, like substitute images, pictures, whatever, right? Cartoons and see what comes back at you. I mean, and it's like, it's bad for the subs. It's bad for the kids, right? There are ways that we can systematically change the way that we're bringing adults and kids around one another. So one is like, yeah, like you get more professional autonomy and flexibility, which I think is, I think is amazing. Go back to that Stevenson elementary example to this point that you're making, like when you start to empower educators and see what they do, this is what happened, right? They started third grade. That was it. The plan that the principal had was like, okay, we'll start in third grade. We'll scale to fourth grade next year. Guess what happened? Teachers started talking to each other. They're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, I want to do that. And so you had fifth grade and sixth grade teachers who were saying, I don't want to wait for this innovation to come. Like, we want to do this. And then you had families that were coming to the principal and saying, wait, okay, I got my kid in third grade. I know this is like the plans of the fourth grade, but I got a first grader coming in too. Is this going to be happening for them? Because my child feels seen in a way that they've never felt seen before. And that's like super cool. So that in Stevenson, they started in third grade, four teachers. That was it. That's how they kicked it off. And they stacked the deck too. Like, I'm not going to lie, right? Mesa Public Schools, they said, hey, looking across the district, where's a place where this innovation is likely to flourish straight out of the gate? Ah, Stevenson Elementary. we got a great leader there. This is awesome. This like leader is predisposed to innovation, like trying something new, good leadership. And then that principal said, where am I going to start this in my school? Oh, third grade team. I know these people. These people are going to run with this. And then the idea sort of sold itself, right? And so then they went whole school in the next academic year. This is all during COVID, by the way. And then this year, they have actually moved away from the age-graded schooling because the teachers were saying to each other, wait, we got a bunch of kids. They're all third graders, technically third graders, but they're actually all over the map. What if we actually created a team that was second and third grade students? And what if we actually had another team that was kinder want? Or what if we had another team that was uh, three, four, four, five, right? And, and so the educators started to say, wait, all these ways that we've been doing school and staffing school and grouping kids, well, that doesn't totally make sense. What if we did it a different way? And the principal's like, cool, build it. I mean, it is like, it gives me, literally gives me goosebumps telling the story because, and you walk in and it's like, it's again, a place where I want my own children learning. Uh, I want to give this a little bit of a local context because uh, I'm excited. I got goosebumps listening to you tell uh, about the work that's going on, which is why I'm so grateful that you're on the podcast to share this out as a way to just expand our thinking about what's possible with the brick and mortar setting that we're so familiar with. And to just, again, get rid of that, that mental barrier, that wall that uh, might be there. And so for a local context, I would say I've certainly seen, particularly at the elementary level, where one teacher will teach math to both classrooms if they're a team of two, uh, if that is their passion. And, and I love thinking that uh, the teacher who is passionate about math while leading a math lesson is more likely to hold the room captive because of their passion for that particular discipline than they might be if that's not in your bailiwick and you're up there 
just trying to get through to the next subject that you really have a bigger heart for, maybe is a way to say that. Uh, and so I think that that already exists as a practice that's out there. Differentiation. I've been into classrooms where there are three, four, even five different groups. And that one sole educator who's amazing uh, is setting up all five groups and at running themselves ragged, trying to be able to create the content and then facilitate groups where an adult can't necessarily be there where in what we're talking about the groups might be a little bit larger but i would assume in those instances you're going to have multiple classroom teachers that are able to man different stations and be an active collaborator in that learning process at each uh, in a way that you wouldn't if, if you just shut the door and, and and i'll even go one step further and say in a school that's very close to where i currently live they had two teachers who decided to team together, tore the wall down, and then when they rebuilt the school, every classroom now has a wall that rolls back into the yeah. wall so they can bring the classroom together or close it and do independent. And they have what is called a bubble room, which is off the side of it, uh, which is for small group, for when uh, like a reading specialist, for example, would like to pull people and shut the doors. And it is in, in that district where I had the opportunity to work. It's a powerful practice that has certainly grown and it's flexible. They've gone into that mode and out of it at times, yeah. <laughs> depending on the content. And so uh, I, I I go to those places to say, if this sounds so foreign to you as a listener, uh, these things are happening in Nebraska that I, I feel like are a launch point for the type of plus that you're advocating for, Brent. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. And what I love about it, right, is that when you actually stop and you really pay attention to schools across the country, like there is that sort of innovation already happening. And some of this is that when you join something bigger, when you start to associate with it, when you start to say, oh, other people are like, oh, interesting. That what we're finding is that educators are feeling emboldened and empowered and they got a little bit of cover where it's not like, oh yeah, like we're doing this thing. But rather, we're part of something bigger. We're part of, in some ways, taking our profession and owning it, right, in really powerful ways. And what I will say is the co-teaching model, you got two teachers, like that's a very good start. And what I will also say is that, you know, if you even expand by another teacher and there's three on a team or four on a team, you start to enjoy sort of new benefits every time that you add another teacher. Now, there's like some like, upper limit. I don't know what it is. Probably depends, right? It's like six, seven, where it's like, whoa, this has just got too weird, too complicated. And we can't manage this many adults, much less all the students. And again, it's different in elementary and secondary. You know, we're finding like kind of four, three, three to five, kind of four is sort of a sweet spot. But imagine, right, in a world where you've got two teachers that have teamed up and one of those teachers needs to be gone for a day. Then it's got, you got one person and now you're back to a sub. And so like the degrees of freedom that come, even when you have three educators collaborating. And, and I will also say, right, sometimes that's like you get three people in a room and the conversations are more rich. What we're seeing in terms of educator data, we just got a, a tranche of data back from, we're doing an external study. We got tons of amazing researchers at ASU, but right, like if you study yourself, then like, you know, that's questionable. So we're working with Johns Hopkins University as a, you know, as an external partner, and they, um, they've been studying these models. And what we're finding, we're still waiting on the student outcomes. They're coming. COVID, you know, it's hard. And 
for the educators that have been teaching these models, again, during the pandemic, we're finding a few things to be true. One, you know, these are all statistically significant point. Oh, well, like educators are statistically significantly more satisfied working in these team-based models. Basically, you know, three quarters of teachers saying that they agree or strongly agree that they are satisfied as opposed to two thirds, you know, 60%, 66% working in other models. Both of those are pretty high, right? We got a lot of pretty satisfied teachers in this district. We'll start there. Second, we're hearing educators in these team-based models say that they collaborate more. And importantly, it'd be weird if they didn't say that, right? First of all, let's be honest. The second, if it, like in terms of collaboration, we particularly teased out the difference between collaboration and planning work and collaboration in actual implementation. So you could imagine that in that math example that you're giving, it's like, yeah, in one world, one teacher teaches math. The other world, the teacher teaches ELA. You swap the kids. We basically departmentalized. Instead, it's like, yeah, one person's teaching math, maybe to 50 kids. And then they're both kind of, you know, doing some small group work, right? Popping in there between. And so they're actually collaborating on the fly. And I'm in these classrooms and like, I see so many cool things happening, right? Where like one teacher will just add a nice little bit of clarification at the end of another teacher's demonstration of a concept. And so you get like kind of two heads better than one or three or four, right? And that's like, that's super, that's super cool. So more satisfied, they're collaborating more, especially in the, the sort of the actual implementation work. And then third, I was fearing that this result would be the opposite. It was that teachers in these team-based models reported that they felt like they had better teacher-student relationships than in one teacher, one classroom models. And I was like petrified about this a little bit, right? Because I was like, we need to ask this question because you get more kids, you get more educators, you worry that like, you don't know your kids as well. And what we're finding is that when you listen to the conversations, you know, during planning meetings, when you've got two or three educators, this is not like Brent Madden sitting alone at Starbucks, like, you know, doing my lesson planning. This is two or three professionals, four professionals sitting around. They're having conversations about individual learners and they're like getting new insights from their colleagues, right? It's really powerful, the sorts of conversations. And so ultimately they feel like they're getting a better handle on who their kids are, what their students' strengths are, and how to best meet the needs of every single one of those learners. You know, one of my favorite activities to do with new teachers is, okay, imagine your third period class, make a roster of all your kids. Go from memory right now, right? People are like furiously writing and almost inevitably two or three things happen. One, the students with the biggest discipline problems are like almost always at the top of the list. And then there's like these high flying students. And then there's like always, like almost inevitably, right? Great, open-hearted, lovely people, good teachers. There's always like about three or four kids and you just watch them slow down as they're like thinking about all their kids, right? And so this happens. It's just part of being human. And how do we stop that from being true? Well, part of it is when we bring multiple adults together who are clicking with different kids in different ways, right? Everyone's got backs. And if you're like finding that there are kids at the bottom of the list collectively, you start making a plan as a team to make sure that we don't lose those kids. And I would imagine too, then to add to the dynamic that is in place as that is happening. And so I'm guess I'm asking this, a student like your son, might connect with a teacher that would not have normally been the teacher they were assigned to. And as such, gives feedback, 
asks more questions and opens up to the adult in the room that they can connect and identify with in a way that then is shared amongst that team of educators, which would maybe be a factor leading to the point that you're talking about. Is that fair to say? 100%, right? A kid is actually fortunate enough to go to one of these schools. It's got some team-based model going on, right? Mr. Montano has got my kids back every day of the week. And I can imagine that, that the other teachers are like, oh my gosh, Mr. Montano, seriously? How are you getting Scott to do this? And he's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. This, I got this figured out. Like, this is like a kid that I taught like 12 years ago, right? And like, that's so cool. When educators, professional educators, have the time. And this is the other thing. Like you're like, Brent, like what are the things that need to be true in order for this to happen? One, you got to have top-down support from the principal, right? The principal's got to be bought in and supportive because you're going to hit road bumps. And also you're going to want to like shut your doors and, and make this disappear sometimes, right? Because it's hard. And so you need to have a principal that's going to support you, but also challenge you and help you or a, a team lead could be the same thing, right? A teacher leader doing this helps that there's top-down support from the whole school district as well. Two, having some space that's like physically proximate to each other. Stevenson actually got to a spot where they asked the district, can you put similar to these walls that you're describing? They didn't like bust down the whole walls, but they did put in glass doors between all the classrooms. And so it's now feels like one continuous learning space. They can open the doors, they can close the doors, right? And now in Mesa, there's like a thing called you earn your doors, right? Like if you've teamed well enough, we'll come in and we'll actually build doors between your rooms. Right. And it's like become part of the culture in the district. So cool. You, you know, one, support from the principal, two, physical space, at least proximate to each other. You know, you can't do this like with one classroom here and another classroom like on the other side of the school. That just don't just not gonna work. And then three, and critically, you gotta have time to work together as a team to plan. And if we don't have that, and schools are doing some real clever things to figure out how to do this, right? that they're outsourcing duties. They're hiring community educators or people come in to help with some of the duties to create more time and space for teachers to plan. They're like leveraging technology in creative ways. They're doing things like creating intercessions, right? Where like a member of the community will come in and teach something for like a half day for five days to buy enough planning time for educators to meet and plan out the next nine weeks of unit. This is the kind of thing, right? When I think about what, what teachers deserve, they deserve the time, protected time to be able to do this. But if you don't have the time, this is all going to turn to dust overnight. Wow. There's just so much to peel into that it's really <laughs> awesome to think about that. Uh, and to, to have these community members come in and to fill that instructional space for half a day. Speak to that, I guess, because it sounds, I mean, to the degree that that's been, uh, whether it's your son or, or or something that you've gotten a chance to witness yourself. So at my kid's school, uh, I'll give a couple of concrete examples here. My kid's school, they contract out special services. So every day they've got elective, the chess, Lego robotics, Bila Bila dancing, and, and art. Art is actually done by a certified professional art teacher in the school, but it could be a community artist, right? You know, you could have rotating community artists come through on contract. And so because they've done that, they've bought 50 minutes of protected planning time a day for our students and they rotate through there. So they partner with community-based organizations like Lego Robotics. It's like, it's not like some teacher who's passionate about robotics or Lego or whatever. It's like actually like a separate organization that's coming in. 
This is actually also broadening our students' networks, right? They're coming in contact with other, like my kid gets four other teachers a day. In addition to like the three people that are teaching him, professional educators, he's got access now to four different, like the Bila Bila teacher, you know, who's doing all these performances. We learn about this. Like then we go and support the Bila Bila teacher. And it starts to bring our community into our schools in really interesting ways. Are these people trained? Do they have like a, you know, master's degree in teaching? No, they don't, but they are really smart and passionate about like the things that they do. So like, that's an example of, they built that into the schedule. They've built it into the budget. They figured it out. There are all sorts of ways to do this also in a, in a cost neutral way. And I don't know if there's podcast notes or whatever. We got like a white paper that we've collaborated on uh, with uh, educational resource strategies, ERS, to like talk about how you might actually go in and do this at more or less a budget neutral way through shifts in time and shifts in staffing. The other example that I would give is from a, a school in rural North Carolina, where they would run these things called intercessions. And I mean, they had a heck of a time finding all sorts of, you know, educators generally, this is rural North Carolina. But what they did is the principals leveraged their networks and their connections, and they recruited people, hey, come to North Carolina, be here for a week, embed in this school and teach your passion, right? You love like old film? Cool. Like, that's great. Lean into that. You love applied physics? Well, great. Do something with the kids around applied physics where we, and what that was honestly doing. I mean, the kids loved it. They were like, when's the next intercession? But more than that, I mean, it literally bought time for the educators. I mean, imagine what that would be like two or three times a year to have, even if it was five half days, to sit together with your colleagues who are on your team and plot out what the next six, nine weeks are going to be right? Based on the data that we've been observing, we know our kids different come October than we did at the beginning of the year, right? Like that's like so cool. Wow. And the benefits of that, you know, I think uh, back to being an elementary kiddo myself and especially in a smaller community, uh, I knew that there were teachers and I knew that there were people who did the businesses on the main street. And I didn't really understand what else was out there in the world to the degree that you might, if it was a regular practice for there to be other professionals. And even as you mentioned in the North Carolina scenario that are coming in for maybe even out of the area uh, or out yeah. of the state uh, to do yeah. this situationally is incredible. And uh, you think too about what we can do with leveraging technology to even bring some of those voices in, in a different capacity. And uh, just love having the opportunity to chat about how we might start to think about our profession a little bit differently. And uh, from the time I read the article uh, to our conversation prior to recording today, Brent, it has been inspiring uh, to get a chance to chat with you. And as I say, every week, half hour goes really fast. And so uh, we're probably even a little over time, but I, I love uh, that your previous point, I think, kind of sets us up for, for the closure here would be to say, you're obviously invested in this work, not only in Arizona, uh, but North Carolina, uh, and in a myriad of different schools and districts uh, across the country. And so I know there's a cohort that we've talked about. Speak to that initiative, I guess. Yeah. So we've got a partnership with AASA, the Superintendents Association, to make this set of ideas. Again, it's not one model, right? It's not open a box and implement this thing. It's like, 
a set of design tenants. And we've, we've built a ton of resources and we've built, a, we've learned a ton of lessons doing this across 50 schools and 10 different districts and soon to be a lot more. And we're humbled as educators by the work. And I think that we've got enough that we're really eager to share with others that are interested in kind of pushing this and joining part of a network of other school systems across the country that are like, oh, right? Like, what are you doing? Or how did you fix this with your, you know, Synergy student information system that hates teams, right? And, and it's the power of coming together. And so we're building this network. It's a national network. First session, it's going to run kind of monthly, get a taste of it, explore it, hear from educators, hear from building level leaders, system level leaders about like what's working, what were the challenges, what's the impact on budget, what's the impact on uh, human capital management systems, right? Like all of that, that happens during this fall. And then in the spring, it's like roll up your sleeves, pick a school or two or three where you might want to start this work just to try it out. And like, let's take the spring semester and think about design. The fall semester is real low commitment. And so if there are any listeners out there, you're like, oh yeah, this would be super rad. Like I'm willing to spend seven hours over just the course of five months to kind of sniff and smell this thing out. Let's go ahead and get you in this cohort because we will be stronger together and we will learn more because there's already so much good work, as you've already mentioned, happening in all of these local contexts that I'm like, wow, like, I can't wait to like, look up this school with these sliding walls, right? And see like, you know, what's the commitment? Like, we've got so much learning to do. I think that we can actually put a dent in this question of when we talk about teacher retention, when we talk about teacher recruitment, for me, I don't know that we've got just a teacher shortage problem. I think that we actually have a workforce design problem. And so because of that, I think that we have the power in our rooms and in our schools already to change that because we have amazing professional educators and incredible instructional leaders and systems level leaders who can actually pull this off. And in some cases, what you need is just a little bit of permission or a nudge or a network. And so that's what we're trying to build by bringing people together with this, uh, what we call a, a learning cohort over the next academic year. Uh. And sometimes you need an innovative advocate to tell you that they've already started to walk down that road and invite you to go with them. And so thanks, Brent, for doing that for us today, for lessons that you've learned from this co-teaching plus model. And I just really uh, am so grateful for your time and for everything that you have, have shared to kind of stretch our thinking. And so hopefully we'll have you back on the pod at some point in the future, but definitely check out the show notes if you're listening in, uh, not only for the document that we referenced earlier, as we'll make sure that, that gets in there, but also information to check out the cohort. And so I'll just bring things to a close and say, Brent, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for all of the work that everyone are doing on behalf of their kids, communities. It's the best work out there being an educator.